Stephen Weiner is director of the Maynard Public Library in Maynard, Massachusetts. He is also the author of Faster Than a Speeding Bullet, The Rise of the Graphic Novel. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. You have uh, just uh, presented a paper on the graphic novel as it pertains to the library. Two-pronged question here. You see the graphic novel as a way of attracting an audience that wouldn't perhaps normally go into the library. But how many of these graphic novels... And before we, perhaps even before we start that, could you give us a definition of a graphic novel? Sure. The definition is still in flux. The term was popularized in 1978 by Will Eisner, who wrote and illustrated a book called The Contract with God and Other Stories of Tenement Life. And he had been a successful cartoonist, and he was trying to do a mature story, and so he wanted to sell it to some mainstream publishers. He knew people at Bantam Publishing, and he said to the editor there, he said, I've got something to show you. He couldn't call it a comic book, so he said, it's a graphic novel, and the term has, has become the popular term. But to the definition is in flux, but it, what it means is it's a, really a long comic book that has two covers on it and has a beginning, middle, and end. So it can apply to a single story such as Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Boy on Earth, or it can apply to a complete story within an ongoing character, say, Spider-Man, A Bad Day at the Zoo. There's still more Spider-Man stories, but that one is a graphic novel. It can also apply to nonfiction works. They're also called graphic novels. Miles, which is the story of Art Spiegelman trying to resolve his issues with his father, who hasn't resolved his issues with being a concentration camp survivor, it's called a graphic novel. In fact, it's the most famous graphic novel. But it's not fiction. It's not a novel. It's nonfiction. So is there more text in a graphic novel than there might be in a, in a traditional comic book? No. It's a comic book, basically, that Pretty someone's much. called a graphic novel. Because exactly. Why'd they call it a graphic novel if it's just a comic book? As I said during my presentation, the comic book industry had been so maligned with a way to try to give, give it some respectability. <laughs> Simply by changing the name. Yeah, and they're still trying. I mean, it's still yeah. an issue. Yeah, and a lot of bibliophiles will look down their nose at comic books. Mm -hmm. They still do. It's interesting, though. There's nothing new about this because... I know when I was a kid, we used to read uh, Rupert the Bear uh, mm -hmm. books in England, and uh, uh, that was actually published, as I recall, by one of the newspapers. could have been the Telegraph. And their thinking was, I think, similar to what, what you're discussing, and that is let's get these young kids reading mm -hmm. anything, reading something that they're interested in and that's fun, so that uh, that's used as a stepping stone to, uh, to getting into uh, the traditional novel. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that that's the essence of what you're doing here in terms of the libraries. That's one of the one of the uses. You can talk to lots of public librarians, and they'll talk about how successful, how popular the Tintin books are, and then people grow out of them and start reading, quote-unquote, real books. And that is, that's certainly one of the aims. That was my initial aim. But, you know, since then, I've learned that there's a, real, a very significant adult readership, and these people just like the format. They stuck with it. They right. prefer that format to the... Well, they don't necessarily prefer it, but they, they don't want to give it up either. They may read novels. They may read them interchangeably, but they're not going to give these up. That's really what has caused the, 
the whole change. And so these people, just they still want it. They want a story about Batman for them at 35, not for them at 12. And that's why you have these mature storylines. It's fascinating because, again, I just don't associate comic books with adults, and I don't imagine most people do. Right. But you've obviously un, uh, uncovered. Uh, how, how did you get? How did you get a hold of these statistics? How did you come by this knowledge? The really inter- interesting thing in the United States is that in the 1970s, this retail anomaly developed called the comic book specialty shop, and at one point there were about 9,000 in the United States. And these grew out of the the convention. The co- they used to have comic book conventions where people would sell old comics at good at high prices. They realized that if they sold new materials as well, they could bring in people who weren't collectors. And they develop a whole format from the comic book industry, from the publishers, to just to deal with these these comic book stores. They These things were bought on a non-returnable basis, which means that the, the retailer had to know how many he was going to sell. As a result, the people got to know their clientele very well because they couldn't return the materials like you could on a newsstand. And a couple of big vendors kind of people in the middle grew, and the, and the biggest one is Diamond, which is at this point the only one. There was another one called Capital, another one called Cold Cut in the 80s, but they went out of business. And so Diamond's, the, they're the only people left that take the books from the publisher and resell them to the comic book store expressly. Other people do it, but that's, they also do it to, you know, libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, so they have, they've collected all this data, and it's, it's their data. You tell a lovely story then of uh, the fact that the libraries in the United States are cottoning on to this, mm-hmm. and that as a librarian you were one of the first to uh, to tap into this information, this mm-hmm. knowledge. Perhaps you could talk about when you went to the, the comic book store and you saw all these young boys. Oh sure. Well, as I said, I'd been actually a, I'd been a teacher before I became a librarian, and I'd used comics as a way to motivate students because I was a special education teacher, so a lot of times I was working with people whose reading skills weren't what they could be. And then when I became a librarian, I, was, I still had some interest in comics. It wasn't, it wasn't a great interest. I just went over to probably to see what was interesting in the store, and I saw that there were all these teenage boys just hanging around in the store. And I thought, you know, if we could... One of my goals was to get these teenage boys to, to come to the library, so I said, this is, if this is what's going to entice them, then I'll work on getting this in there. There's a bit of a question of whether a library should reflect the demand out there mm-hmm. or serve as some sort of a, an arbitrator of taste or an institution that houses the best that has been written and produced. It seems to me there, there's, a, there's a bit of uh, tension there. Do you see any inherent value in the stories that these I mean, it seems to me that most of them are like sort of mediocre television that's printed. Mm -hmm. Intrinsic artistic value in these, do you think? I think in some of them there are. I mean, I think that... Which ones would those be? Well, the short list would be in terms of books that would attract readers who generally don't enjoy comic books. Would be Maus, would be one. The most famous, M-A-U-S, Maus. Like plural of Chairman Mao. Correct. Cleverness is the main character is a mouse. So, and that if you're not familiar with that, that's a story about the cartoonist father and mother surviving the concentration camp from World War II, and there, in it, the Jews are mice and the Nazis are cats. And it's it's a very very powerful story. It's now actually required reading in the United States in ninth grade. It's entered the curriculum, which 
I don't think the cartoonist is very happy about, but but anyway, that's it has. Why isn't he happy about it? He thinks it's too thinks that they're too young for that book. It's too it's too brutal. And he tried to soften it by making the characters into animals, but it's a very brutal story because it's about people that never never recovered, even though they they physically survived, they never recovered. And he himself is a victim of it because of growing up with his parents. Animal Farm. Yeah, but it's... It, well, with it pictures. is. I mean, it's, Animal it's, Farm with pictures. Right. You could say that. And you think it's in the same league as Animal Farm? As I think it's much better than Animal Farm. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the mat with anybody over 10 or 12 of these. I mean, some of them are just really brilliant pieces of work. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you that most of them are mediocre. Some of them are very well-delivered genre pieces. The most famous one are the is uh, Sandman by Neil Gaiman, and what? Is he British? Yes. Yeah, uh, he's he's getting some ink. Oh yeah, you know he's he actually became so big that he exploded out of the comic book industry, and now he, he writes novels and he writes films, and he's he's a big guy. Um, but but that, his, his his origins were right, in oh, the graphic novel. Right. He, his the Sandman story is a really fascinating story. He created a group of gods that are older than any of the mythologies. And the main character is the Sandman, who's the Lord of Dreams. And he has siblings who's the, the goddess of death and the god of destruction, etc. But what he did so successfully is he, he, because they're older than gods, he was able to work all of history into his narrative. So people like William Shakespeare and Marco Polo, they're characters. They, I mean, in, in, in his view, the, the Midsummer's Night Dream was only written to entertain the Sandman. And it's a, it's a really it's a great story. It won the World Fantasy Award in 1991, actually. But it's he was able to incorporate so much more because of the timelessness of his characters, and you know he was clever enough to figure that out. But the Sandman, uh, I mean, it's 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 like a comic book, except Correct. it seems to me that to, to have a storyline, it's probably got a bit more text than the normal comic book. I don't. Well, it depends. You you know you're working. How do I say this? There are, there are really two kinds of ways to create a comic book or a graphic novel. And one is you have a writer who writes, who comes up with a story and then writes the dialogue and writes the captions and tells the illustrator what to do. And the other one is the person who does both, who draws and writes, the, the cartoonist. And they, generally speaking, if that happens, there's, there's fewer words because they're, you know, they're, they're letting the pictures tell the story. They're generally writers first. It's, it's I mean, I'm sorry, they're generally artists first. Artists first. So a bit like uh, William Blake then, going back a few yeah, hundred years. Yeah. But, the, but when you have a writer and an artist working together, there really has to be a real synergy. Otherwise, the, the two different facets of the book end up competing with each other. And it's, but in his case, because he was such a good writer, understood the visual aspects so well, it, it always worked out. In fact, he, um, he did what the best comic book writers do, which is they... After they know who they're going to be working with, they study the artist and they say, this person does this, this kind of city scene really well, so I'm going to write it so he can draw this or she can draw this. And they play to the artist's strengths. The same way that if a movie director, for example, may say, okay, I'm going to make a movie with Jack Nicholson. Well, this is the kind of thing that he does well. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I automatically thought of a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Picture, picturing the uh, the scene uh, as opposed to uh, simply working from their imagination entirely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm talking with um, 
Stephen Weiner, director of the Maynard Public Library in Maynard, Massachusetts. He is the author of a book called Faster Than a Speeding Bullet, The Rise of the Graphic Novel. You talk about the outlaw status of comics. Mm -hmm. You talk about the fact that it's a magnetic, has magnetic qualities, um, because you're a librarian. The fact that they pretty well promote themselves just in and of way that they that they look. These could be used by not only libraries, but by bookstores, mm -hmm. by anyone that wants to attract a, an audience of, of readers that may not just automatically come to mind. Mm -hmm. I would agree. And most major bookstores in the United States have graphic novel collections now. Mm -hmm. And some of the independent ones do as well. And again, the fact that th that adults make up the, the largest percentage of, uh, of the readers of this mm -hmm. particular kind of book. You also talk about the fact that this, this genre is growing very, very quickly, second only to uh, young adult Harry Potter-type knockoffs. Right. Yeah, at this point, most publishing houses in the United States are expanding two divisions. One, their young adult division with books they're hoping to attract the Harry Potter readers with and a graphic novel division. And again, I suppose we think of librarians as being rather, let's say, elitist, but certainly if someone would frown on this kind of book, anyone would, it would be a librarian. I think you're pretty much right on that. And it's still the minority, and it's still a battle for libraries, but I think that's changing. And it's changing because as the younger people became librarians, and they just didn't want to give this up. And so they're, they're promoting it in part because of self-interest. You talked about Mao's. Can you give our listeners your top ten all-time greatest graphic novels in terms of the best that you think have ever been written? Okay. We'll start with Mao's, which I think is the greatest graphic novel ever produced. Now, how much would one of those babies cost the first first uh, first printing of that? I have no idea. Okay. I mean, that was published by... Interesting about that is that was published by his own in his own magazine called Raw that he did in the United States. R-A-W? Correct. And he did that when it was, a, it was a way to promote underground cartoonists, and he was one of them. Like Crumb, was he? Yeah, I think he knows Crumb, but Crumb wasn't involved with that. A lot of the people that are popular now, people like Charles Burns, who, does Black, who did Black Hole, that's how they started 20 years ago or so. How did they start? They started in Raw magazine with him. Okay, so he's a bit of an icon oh, over yeah, and over yeah. and above the fact, the oh, yeah. fact that he's the artist and, and writer. Oh, yeah, and he was a, he was a prominent cartoonist before Miles. He, uh, he was big enough so that he had a book of his published by a major publisher called Breakdown that was a collection of strips. It's going to be republished next year, I believe. It's been out of print for a lot of years. But I think Miles is the number one book. I think if you want to do serious fiction books, then Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Boy on Earth, is, is, an, is probably number two. That story of a young man who is trying to come to terms with the fact that he has discovered he has a family in midlife, that, that, that he, he's found his father and his sister. And, but the really fascinating thing about it is that because the cartoonist is so skilled, he, through the illustrations and through the narrative itself, you experience what the character is experiencing. So he's not really telling the story, you're living the story. That may be the most technically advanced book period in my opinion um, then you have a real I think a really important book is this book I mentioned called Understanding Comics which 
with the first attempt to give both people in the comic book industry, cartoonists, and people outside a real, just a point of entry. Because McLeod, the cartoonist, felt that there was a whole potential for comics that was untapped. And that's because cartoonists themselves didn't see what the potential really was. So that, that's why he did that book. But it became a big hit with mainstream readers. It's a very, very big hit. He's gone on to become a, a college lecturer. You know. Um, so then we've got three. Then I, I think that you really can't ignore a book like Bone. I think Bone's the best. Bone is the story of these three cousins. They're called. They're from this place called Boneville. They're kind of Donald Ducky characters. One's one's just there for a gag, and one's um, and one is a very scheming and greedy person. The other one is a good-hearted person. They get they get run out of town, and they they actually go to a part of the world that they're just totally lost, and they become involved in a battle, of, in kind of an Armageddon in a valley over who's going to rule the valley, and they they end up being very integral parts of the story in there. And over the, the person did it over a series of years. So they start out just being very comical, and as his skills and his vision for the book changed, they became much more serious characters. But he was skilled enough to pull off the transition. Uh, that that's another one. I think Watchmen. That's by Alan Moore. That's actually the guy who wrote V for Vendetta. Also, that's people refer to that as the yeah. ultimate superhero story. And he's created a world where superheroes are outlawed, but they have to come back to because. One of the when it's become a renegade and is trying to destroy the world, so all the ones, all the, all the ones with lesser powers have to come back and come out of hiding. Sounds a bit and, like The Incredibles. Um, I think that was some of it was based on that. Yeah, I mean that all those things are based on these, these common these graphic novels of the late '80s. You know, um, they finally kind of infiltrated our, our culture. Um, the really fascinating thing about that is that in there he tries to get get at what it would really be like if these people existed and if you. If, they, if you coexisted with them, and what what the world would be like, <laughs> so it's, it's a really it's a fascinating book. In recent years, you have another book I think it's really important called, called Blanket. It's a very serious book by a young man. It's 700 pages long, and it's about growing up in a religious household, very very fundamental Christian household, and the you know the the restrictions he felt. Who, who's the author of that? That's Craig Thompson. And the name of the, that one is again. Blanket. Blanket. Okay. And then, then, then now, but just in recent years, the United States, anyway, is, is really experiencing a, a, a French invasion in graphic novels. The same way that in the 60s, in music, we experienced a British invasion. Mm -hmm. this, we are having a French invasion. We're having Marianne Satrapi, you know, she's a Persepolis. That's growing up in Iran. She's actually a French citizen now. It's, it's, she, that, that's a two-volume book. It's a fascinating book. David B. is a cartoonist who just did a book called Epileptic, and that's about growing up with one of his siblings was epileptic and how it, um, how it really affected their whole family because they went through years and years of trying to find a cure that went through living in a commune to adopting a macrobiotic diet to just... To it's just a very serious topic. Yes. Oh, yeah, and it's, and it's very, very well done. The really biggest... David B., sorry, he's French, you say? Correct. Yeah. yeah. B... And I don't know what B stands for. That's, okay. his, that's his pen name. Yeah. And then the other really big book in the United States that I would have to, um, I have to espouse. I haven't written anything about it because it was published after all my books were written. Um, is Black Hole by Charles Burns, and that's the story of these teenagers living in Seattle in the 1970s. Is that prior to grunge? I believe so. Yeah. And and they, Nirvana came out of there. And, uh, right. Yeah. So they're living in in Seattle. 
and they contract this disease, all of them do, or this group that he's writing about does. And it may affect, and it's a physical deformity, and it may affect you in a very small way. You may just get some lumps, or it may affect you in this really, really very severe way, so you're just, you're just deformed, and you can't really work in, can't really, you know, live in society anymore. And they, they create a society in the woods because of this. And so you, it's kind of a fantasy story, but he does it so well that it, grow, it, it stops being a fantasy story and becomes a metaphor for the isolation that adolescents feel. It's just, uh, and it's done in almost a woodcut style. It's black and white. And it's, it's, I think it's got to be one of, the, one of the best examples of, the, of the, the form ever created. One of the best. So. And that was published uh, recently? Yeah, published. Came out as, he's been doing it for about 10 years. It came out as a book last year in 2005. Yes. Just in closing, uh, the future of this, uh, uh, you mentioned again during your talk that uh, several years ago you had the sense that uh, that this was a bit of a flash in the pan and that it was going to sort of start declining, but uh, given this huge phenomena called manga right. out of uh, Japan, the mm-hmm. Japanese comic, uh, comic book, uh, and their recent alliance with uh, Harper... Right, but they've done. The other publishers have have formed partnerships with with other American publishers too. Viz has formed one. It's really it's a publishing phenomenon. I mean, and it it's a stylized format. There, but there's a couple of reasons why I think it's so attractive. One is that in Japan they never had the stigma about comic books, mm-hmm. so it has evolved steadily and it's it's pervasive there. All kinds of materials are published in comic book form. Annual reports are published in comic book form. If you go on the subway, everybody's reading a comic book or they're reading manga. And the really fascinating thing about that is that manga isn't that old. It's 60, 65 years old when they started doing it. And the early pioneers, they took their inspiration from the old Disney cartoons. So the characters are actually kind of warped versions of the old Amer- the Warner Brothers cartoons. Did they, did they change the eyes? Because that's a big part of these. Yeah, manga. that is a big part. I don't know exactly the, the details of what the change was, but they were greatly inspired by these to, to create comic books. Because the comic book itself... And Disney, a, sorry, of course, is huge in Japan. It right. always has been. Sure. And, well, comic books themselves, that's an American invention of the early 1930s. So that's, that's so the history is now, what, 75 years old, something like that. Uh, you, do you feel vindicated? Uh, you, you've sort of been pioneering and uh, espousing the... Uh, the various benefits and uh, qualities of this uh, the genre. Uh, how do you feel uh, now versus when you started touting them back in the whenever it was in the 80s? Well, I've actually been. It's been an interest of mine for most of my life. So I started talking about 1970. I feel vindicated. I guess I feel happier that there's a product that's worth worth feeling vindicated about. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it really was back then. I mean, it was. I think it was a perfectly serviceable genre product, and I don't think it was any worse than a lot of other genre products. But they, the industry has grown to the point where there are some examples that they can really be proud of. Mm-hmm. You know? And you've and mentioned a number of them, yeah. Right. And there are, there, you know, there, I mean, that's, that's a pretty short list. It's a lot, a lot bigger list. But. Yeah. Just uh, closing, we talked a bit about my daughters, are nine and, and 12, and they, through the Archie comics, I think they learned so much about sort of the whole social <laughs> dating uh, experience and tools that we were given. Mm-hmm. It just seems that uh, it performs a valuable service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the readability of these books is really, it's, it's a big component. I mean, the example I'll give you from my own family is that my son, 
when he was in third grade, he was two years behind grade level in reading. And then we discovered uh, Star Wars comics, and that really gave, that really provided the impetus for him to learn to read to the point that he grew. By the end of fourth grade, he was on grade level, and by fifth grade, he was reading a novel or a comic interchangeably. That made no difference to him. He doesn't like comics anymore. He's not great, stepping stone. Right. So it's, it's certainly it's certainly a very important component to it. Well, thank you very much for your sure. time. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. I'll be talking with uh, Stephen Weiner, who is the director of the Maynard uh, Library in Massachusetts and also the uh, author of Faster Than a Speeding Bullet, The Rise of the Graphic Novel. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. What I'll do is I'll get one of your cards. I actually don't have, don't have a card, card with me. Let me get your email address. Okay, sure.